Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to join you today for the Culture Watch podcast, a podcast of speaking for him. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I hope that you will be encouraged and edified by what you hear. We are going to start out today's show in just a moment, but I just wanted to encourage you to continue to share my content with others. That's how people get to know us, and I'm so grateful for everyone who does. If you have any comments or questions related to today's content, please share them at the end of the show. All right, without further ado, let's get to news for the week of August 21st. We start out with a controversy involving a teacher who read a questionable book in class. A Cobb County teacher has been fired after reading that book about gender identity in class. Katie Renderly has been, had been suspended since reading that book uh, to her fifth grade class last spring. Fox Vice Denise Dillon was at tonight's meeting where the school board decided she will no longer be teaching in Cobb County. A major disappointment for Katie Rinderly, especially since a teacher disciplinary panel ruled just this week that she should keep her job. And I don't believe it's appropriate for impressionable young children to be exposed to ideas like transgenderism or stories about children that reject God's design. How do you think these children feel going to school knowing that the adults responsible for protecting them can be disciplined for doing so? Teacher Katie Rinderly stood in the back of the room during the Cobb County School Board meeting as parents spoke out in favor and against firing her. Rinderly has been suspended since March after reading the book My Shadow is Purple to her fifth grade class at Due West Elementary. The book touches on gender identity. The Cobb County School District says when Rinderly read the book in the classroom, she violated Georgia's new divisive concepts law, which limits what teachers can talk about in class. A disciplinary panel ruled Rinderly showed a lack of judgment, but recommended did she keep her job? The school board rejected their finding and fired Renderly. Effective immediately, support the superintendent's recommendation and terminate Ms. Renderly's employment contract with Cobb County School District. Renderly's attorney says she's extremely disappointed in the board's decision. What can only be construed as politics over policy uh, fired Katie Renderly. Uh, we believe that it's it's inappropriate. We believe that uh, there's no justification for it. Attorney Craig Goodmark says while Renderly can teach in other counties. Her fight here in Cobb isn't over. He says there are appeals and potentially a wrongful termination lawsuit. In Cobb County, Denise Dillon, Fox 5 News. Okay, I'm going to start out this discussion by simply saying this. The judgment of this school board was spot on. Primarily because she violated a new law in Georgia. So for this attorney to say in the end of this piece that this was policy and politics over what is proper, I say to you, sir, since when is following the law not proper? That's the first thing to say. Now, I will admit that Georgia is a conundrum of a state for me because they have two Democratic senators. They've had two 
hotly contested senatorial elections in the last several years, and they've gone Democrat both times for both of their senators. So it's been a challenge to gauge where Georgia is because for a long time I thought they were one of the more conservative states. And this law that's on the books appears to be very conservative and to want to uphold things that will preserve our children. But the second thing that I will point out is that this teacher did not inform parents that she was going to read this book. So even if there wasn't a law against what she did, she should still be disciplined if parents are not happy with her decisions in the classroom. We've had discussions on my podcast platform before about how it is parents' job to raise the children and school's job to support the parents in this endeavor. So I am really happy that Georgia got this right. Again, if you as a Georgian want to look at this law and say it is discriminatory and change this law, then go through the legal precedent to change the law. But you can't say this is wrongful termination when there actually is a law in the books against what she did, and she did it anyway. The final thing that I want to say on this, and it is something that has been said many times, but I feel that it bears repeating again, and that is simply that these discussions about sexuality do not belong in a classroom, let alone an elementary or middle school classroom. These are discussions that are at the very least for older children, and I believe these discussions should take place in the home with the parents. We don't send our kids to school so they can learn lessons about sexuality. We send kids to school so they can learn about history, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Those are the subjects we expect to be covered when we send kids to school. Anything else is getting off into the weeds. And I just wish we would get back to the place where we didn't talk about people's sexual orientations every single day. Where we didn't talk about that stuff because it's private. See, for about a decade and a half, we were told that we should be happy with any activity as long as it's in the bedroom and not in our faces. And now we are essentially being told that unless you freely allow your children to learn this stuff and you talk about it freely in public and you go to public events on this stuff, then you are a bigot, you are narrow-minded, and you don't have a place in society. That's what we are being told as a culture. And here's the deal. If parents are charged to be responsible for their children, which I believe wholeheartedly they are, the most important things that they need to be teaching their kids is the moral things that have to do with sexuality. Because sexuality is something that God gave us, and it's a wonderful gift, but it needs to be used appropriately. And it is parents, not teachers, 
that get to decide how that information is disseminated. Get back to academics and get off this woke agenda. Because as you can see, parents are done and they are fighting back. And I, for one, am glad to see it. You know, people talk about how bad things are getting in our society today, and I will agree. But the one thing that I'm excited about is that people aren't taking it sitting down. They are finally coming to a place where they know they have to act. And I'm so glad that that is happening. Because this country is made up of we the people, despite what our leaders may think. My next story comes from a Tennessee school that got an interesting creative writing assignment from a teacher. Now we're only in the second week of school for most districts at this point. So just a few days into the school, uh, school calendar year, and here we are dealing with, an, or again, a writing assignment. I never meant to kill her. I only wanted to hurt her. So our Lydia Fielder looked into this story. I want to play for you exactly what we reported on this instance. It's wrong all across the board. A teacher at White County Middle School assigned her eighth graders this prompt on the second day of class. It reads, I never meant to kill her. I only wanted to hurt her, but now her ghost follows me everywhere. This week, my son um, came to me and decided not to do an assignment. Brought to light by a mom at the August school board meeting who says the school never told the parents about it. But this first picture, you can see a woman with no face. Now, these are not exact. They have windows everywhere, maybe possibly blood laying around. She said, I started to write it and then I just stopped. She didn't want to finish it. Madison Meadows' little sister is in this same English class. She says it was meant to be a creative writing prompt. I understand creative writing, but when I, my creative writing was a t about a tooth fairy traveling to the seven continents and specific rivers, not murdering someone. Even further, she echoes the opinions of other parents we talked to about the dark thoughts the prompt calls forth. If this kid didn't have a good home life and DCS was involved, and they found the assignment. So this is a valid concern right now. I just want to show you this here. Uh, this is the page, the web page that you can click on right now. White County parents concerned over middle school writing assignment about killing someone. If you uh, missed the original writing assignment, it's this right here. I never meant to kill her. I only wanted to hurt her, but now her ghost follows me everywhere. And you can imagine when we put this story on social media, uh, a lot of you guys were starting to respond to it, especially when you consider the the, the time we're in, when we've had a recent school shooting in this area, let alone what's been going on across the country, at the end of March, we had a deadly Covenant school shooting where six people were killed, three students and three adults. So let me get this straight. You are going to tell me as a teacher from a school that is minutes away from Nashville where there was a school shooting with loss of life in March that your first writing assignment days into the school year is going to be prompted by a prompt that said, 
I never meant to kill her, but. What are kids supposed to do with that writing prompt? I would seriously like to know. Because this blows my mind. Just this idea that we would even think this was an appropriate thing for kids to know. And once again, we have a situation where parents are in the dark. I don't care if there was no laws violated. I don't even care if there was no school policy violated. The fact of the matter is, we are not dealing with a college assignment even. This would be even appropriate in a college assignment, but we're not dealing with college students who are adults who can think through some of these things. We are dealing with children. And we are dealing in a situation where parents, once again, were not made aware of this assignment. And you want to know why they weren't made aware of this assignment? Because they would have been livid. And you heard in this story that some parents and other relatives were dumbfounded by this assignment. So I just have to wonder, what goes through teachers' minds when they assign something like this? And what goes through parents' minds after something like this happens? Because if this assignment is going to come down from your school, who's to say that they're not going to come up with something else that is even more bizarre for them to deal with? So once again, I say to parents, be on your guard. I believe that homeschooling is the best way to educate a child. I can testify from my time working at a school that a lot of the school day is about making sure that kids get their work done. I recently heard Brett Cooper of the Daily Wire say that she enjoyed her time homeschooled because she could get done in two or three hours, which was what was done in a seven-hour school day in the regular school. I remember probably a couple years back now, there was a meme, and these kind of things circulate from time to time. So it was by no means a unique thought, but it was basically saying that for the people that say that that their kids should go to school for the socialization, basically that that was kind of a dumb argument because the reality is that you are encouraged not to socialize in school. And that is really the reality. We spend most of our time as teachers trying to convince kids not to socialize with one another. I mean, sure, there's the occasional group activities. That's true. And you do get to know friends at school when you share classroom spaces with them. And there are some good discussions. But overall... The school day is spent with a lot of wrangling and making sure that kids do the work that they're supposed to do. Homeschooling allows you a lot more flexibility. This didn't happen often, but I remember times as a homeschool student where I knew that I wanted to get out and play and spend time outside in the yard. 
and I knew it was going to be a beautiful day, so I would get up early in the morning. I would start my schoolwork at like 7 a.m., even though I could have started at 8.30 or 9, and I would work hard and get my assignments done by 11 or 12 o'clock. If I could be done with my school as a homeschooler before noon, I would love to do that. And I had the option to do that because I was homeschooled. Because I wasn't restricted by this is the class time for this subject and then in 45 minutes we're going to have another subject. I was given a certain assignments in each subject for the day or sometimes for the week and I could do them at my own pace. Now sometimes did I slough off and not do what I was supposed to do? Yes. I did, but the point that I'm making here is that you have a lot of flexibility with homeschooling, and when you get lucky enough, as we did, at least briefly, to have neighbors that homeschool, then you can go outside and play with them in your backyard or their backyard after lunch if you have your schoolwork done. I never felt deprived of socialization. You want to know why? Because first of all, I was the oldest of a big family. And second of all, I always had friends. We always had homeschool activities we went to, whether roller skating or homeschool activities of one stripe or another. We were part of a homeschool group that would organize field trips So we were never really deprived of socialization. But we were deprived, thank goodness, of these ridiculous assignments. The ridiculous realities that these students find themselves in. Being forced to listen to teachers read these books and having parents find out after the fact. To me, the most telling thing about all of these conflicts with teachers and with the, especially the sexual content in schools is that often you will see these videos of parents who will be concerned about material in the school library and they will go to the school board meeting and read the objectionable material to show that it's objectionable and then be told that it's too objectionable for public consumption. And the question becomes, if it's too unacceptable for public consumption, why is it being fed to students during their most impressionable time on earth? And that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. We have been challenged to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so I'm glad that there's parents stepping up. And these last two stories, well discouraging, also had encouraging things within them. I'm glad that Georgia has a law that is working for the children of Georgia, and I'm glad that these parents are speaking out about a writing prompt that is absolutely disgusting. So as we move on, we will talk about 
a 16-year-old young lady who is showing courage after being kicked off her swim team. 16-year-old Abigail Wheeler was banned from her YMCA and kicked off her swim team after voicing concern on biological males identifying as transgender females being allowed in the girls' locker room. Her coach also reportedly accused her of hate speech. Abigail Wheeler, her sister Caitlin Wheeler, and OutKick podcast host Riley Gaines all join me now. Good morning to you all. Abigail, this is a lot for a 16-year-old to go through. So first of all, give us the details here. Tell us what led to you getting kicked off your swim team. So, um, actually, when I had seen the man in my locker room, I had gone to my head coach, Alex Satura, and talked to him about my concerns, and he told me that the Y had been, uh, they had known about this for a while, and that there was nothing they could do by state, Illinois state law, and that if I was uncomfortable, I could use the family locker rooms, or I could uh, not change at the facility and then um anyways so when um when I voiced my concern several times to my head coach and the CEO of the Y, um, I was basically told the same thing over and over. So me and my one of my co-teammates, uh, actually, we decided we were going to put informative signs up in the women's locker room to let them know, the members know kind of what was going on. And um, the next day when we went to practice, my head coach uh, told our girls team that there were hateful messages put up in the women's locker room that were considered hate speech and disrespectful. I then went to my coach and gladly told him that I was, you know, a part of this and uh, and he said that it was probably um, not the best option for me to swim with the swim team uh, that night and that the YMCA staff would follow up with my family. Abigail, what did your sign say that the coach accuse them of being hate speech what what did your sign say that you put up in the locker room um, mine said three quotes one was safe sport uh, women's rights and biological women only and that's what the coach said was hate speech Yes. Wow. Well, we did. Um, Springfield YMCA's communications director responded to the situation. He says there have been a variety of false statements around the same issue circulated by the same individuals since the past May. In this version of the story, the statements that the swimmer was removed from the Y and prevented him from participating in the swim team is false. She left the swim team and the YMCA on her own. Is that true? No, it is not. Very interesting. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is congratulations to this 16-year-old girl for having the courage to stick to her guns and to speak out about what was making her uncomfortable. One of the biggest inconsistencies in this whole thing is one side is able to articulate their discomfort, the trans side, the non-trans side is not allowed to articulate their discomfort. They are told, if they do, that it is a situation that is bigotry and that they are hateful. 
the signs in question that had those quotes were not hate speech. They were speaking the truth. For people that hate the truth, they were hate speech because if the truth hurts, it can be very hard for us to accept the truth. But the Proverbs remind us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You see, if we were to follow the world's trend, we could just tell someone, embrace your truth. It doesn't matter what you believe, but the absence of truth in our culture leads to chaos. And this is something that the world does not understand. When we as Christians talk about embracing the cross and embracing a God who teaches absolute truth, they think we are foolish. Why? Because the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And what we are seeing before our eyes is a situation where people who are speaking about the basics of biology are being told that they are bigoted and hateful. And there's nowhere to go in conversation if that is the case. Because things like biology and the simple essence of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman, those are the foundational points at which you begin moral conversations. So you take those foundational points away and no conversations about the moral activities we should be engaged in can be undertaken. It used to be that even people who were not believers had a respect for the moral standards that upheld America. Benjamin Franklin admitted to not being a Christian. As a matter of fact, he said to George Whitfield once, very similar to Herod Agrippa, you almost persuade me, sir, to become a Christian. And yet Benjamin Franklin understood moral absolutes, and he understood and had no problem with saying that God was instrumental in the founding of this country. He said that God governs in the affairs of men. And we've come a long way from that time. And if someone cannot embrace the simple truth that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, why would they tell the truth when they say that they didn't kick her off the team? I just think there's a lot going on here and we only get one side in the typical media. And that is the side that says you have to embrace all lifestyles, all genders, you know, any amount of foolishness. If it is someone's truth in order to be a proper citizen in order to be a proper member of the culture in which we live. And that is why it is so important for us to realize that we are in the world and not of the world. Because the world is tossed about by whatever new opinion or new gender is out there. 
but we stand on the solid rock of the word of God. The final story I want to share with you is the latest in a long line of stories relating to the overall wokeness of our society. And this one, I have to admit, floored me when I didn't think I could be floored again. We are apparently being shamed for drinking coffee, though, because we learned yesterday that that is also racist. Because obviously they have to include race in literally everything and they're probably getting bored so they just want to make up something new to be angry about. But here's the article that was circulating on Twitter. Is coffee racist? How drinking coffee perpetrates white supremacy. And I'm pretty sure it's real. We're going to get into a little debate about that because people are going back and forth. But we're just going to read the article first because it's really funny and then we'll talk about it. A guy commented and said, the staff at Axios are furious they didn't post this story first. Elon commented and said, even my coffee? Especially yours. Another guy said, I'm on my third cup. That must make me a grand wizard or something. Anyway, let's get into the article. They started off and they say, if you're a person of color, you know what I'm talking about. You walk into a new coffee shop and your senses are overwhelmed with whiteness. <laughs> and you get the glare from the Karens. The white hipster barista lines herself up between you and the bathrooms, ready to tell you non-customers aren't welcome. First of all, that's not a race thing. That's literally just like a normal coffee shop thing. So you guys need to pipe down. Anyway, if you have a white coffee drinking friend, he or she may have even let you in on the old coffee joke. White coffee drinkers share when POC aren't around. There are three things that are necessary in order to make a good cup of coffee. And they are first, a black man to roast the coffee. Second, a yellow man to grind it. And third, a white man to drink it. Well, I'm here to validate your lived experience. Coffee is in fact horribly racist and there's data to back it up to. First of all, as a white person, that's not a joke. I've never heard that before. They say it's a well-known fact that whites would be eating bland food like plain bread and gruel if it weren't for their theft of culinary secrets from people of color, especially black folks. That's precisely why when the whites found out about coffee, it became one of the reasons that they decided to victimize an appropriate black civilization wholesale. The first coffees exported to North America and Europe were harvested by slaves. Later, enslaved Africans prepared and served coffees for their slave owners when they were not laboring in the fields. Hey guys, I'm so sorry to burst your bubble, but basically everything in the 16 to 1700s came from colonialism and trade routes. And sadly, much of that was connected back to slavery across the world, not just in America, not just in Africa, literally everywhere. That's part of history. That's part of how we are where we are today. Why are you so pressed in 2023 about that? Like, come on, be so for real right now. This is absurd. You're getting angry about something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We have moved on. We've acknowledged that slavery is an atrocity. Sometimes I think people haven't moved on because they don't talk about the fact that people are still enslaved around the world, but you're so caught up with this mess when we fought a war to end slavery in this country, and you're still talking about it because you want to cry victimhood every single day. Anyway, sorry. Moving on, it is apparently not just how the coffee is grown in the history of coffee, but it is also racist because white people drink it. And the article said, if you think the coffee culture can find refuge in specialty coffee, think again. This might be obvious to some, but I'll spell it out for the folks in the back. The bourgeois notion of specialty coffee is explicitly rooted in classism, which is directly linked to racism, a whole other and very long topic. It's not just that black folks cannot afford specialty coffee. Again, that is offensive. You're saying that an entire race just because of the color of their skin can't get something. 
It's not the most empowering thing. Anyway, the very acceptance of the term specialty coffee suggests that some coffee is somehow superior to others. An idea that is rooted in whiteness. Values like hard work creates better products is a white supremacist idea that is constantly forced upon people of color and justifies stereotypes like the myth of laziness in people of color. What is going on? Specialty coffee is not some white supremacy term. It is literally a fact. The coffee that I make in my stupid Keurig that was $30 from Best Buy is not going to be as good as me going to one of those hipster overpriced coffee shops and getting something that's actually amazing where they like spritz the little coffee beans and like shake it up and do all that crazy stuff. That's not racist. Okay, so on the surface, this shouldn't be surprising because we've already heard that syrup that has Mrs. Butterworth on it, rice that has Uncle Ben on it, and even the term hard work can be racist because it denotes slaves in the cotton fields. I want to remind you of what I said when I talked about affirmative action several weeks ago. It is actually an insult to black people or anyone that you want to give a quota to to say that because you are black or African American, you deserve this advantage in the classroom or anywhere else. And as I also explicitly stated, I feel the same way about my disability. I want to work for an employer that wants to work with me because they think I will be a good employee, not because of my disability. So when you say... Coffee is racist because black people can't afford it. And you specifically say this about specialty coffees. Then you are directly insulting a whole race of people. Guess what? There are rich upper class African American people and other black races. There are middle class black people of all stripes, and there are lower-class black people of all stripes. Okay, there is coffee that I can't afford. And it has nothing to do with the fact of my skin color. I'm a white person. I have two white parents, a bunch of white siblings. My whole family is white. But my being able to afford expensive deluxe coffee has nothing to do with that and everything to do with the income that I have, which I am very careful with. And as Brett so clearly points out in this piece, anything that happened in the 17th and 1800s has slavery as part of its story because slavery is part of the American story. It doesn't mean that it was right. It doesn't mean that we should simply say that it's acceptable. But it also doesn't mean that you 
should feel guilty every time you walk into a coffee shop. If I'm at Barnes and Noble getting coffee with a friend and I happen to be served by a black barista, what am I to say then? Is that racist? Because I'm sure that Barnes and Noble doesn't restrict their employment to white people. So I I just thought that this was absolutely crazy that coffee is the latest thing to be put in the racist category. And this is one of the things that is so important for us to realize. You can never apologize enough for offenses to the woke mom because they will find another thing to be offended about. If it's not your football team or your baseball team, it will be the fact that you work hard or the coffee that you drink. This is the culture in which we live. Now I do see value in fair trade coffee. I understand that some of the coffee that you might get from overseas might still have a slavery or sweatshop connotation to it. And even some sneaker companies have that issue with their overseas production. But the point is, the product itself is not racist. And we need to realize that these people in the woke mob will continue to look for things to be upset about. Because there is a set of people in our society that wake up every day saying, how can I be offended? And we as believers need to wake up every day and say, how can I reach out and help others. That should be our goal. Well, I hope you've been encouraged and been given some things to think about on today's show. If you've been benefited by it, I hope that you'll share it with your family and friends. If you think there's a news story I should cover next week, please let me know with the contact information that's about to roll at the end of the show. Also, if you have any perspectives on the news stories that I do share, please feel free to Let me know that as well, and I would be glad to share them on a future episode of this podcast. For Culture Watch, this is Andrew Gomison saying, have a great day, and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.